recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. I'm sorry I always do that. I forget to stop that, and it cycles back through to the beginning of the playlist. Today is Friday, May 16th, 2014. This is part seven of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans. We'll be discussing, for the most part, Romans chapter six tonight, Israel and their relationship to the law in the new covenant. Before beginning Romans chapter six, I would like to take a few minutes to discuss the word sin and why I avoided it in my translations because I have my biases also. Even though the word's use is so ubiquitous in Christian dialogue that it is impossible to avoid in daily discussion. When I was a child in Catholic grade school, we were taught that sin was some sort of mystical black stain on your soul. And if you collected enough of them, you were going to suffer in flames for eternity. That was the nearly indelible picture left on my childhood mind by the nuns who educated me through the fourth grade. Now, now it, was, it was certainly not unusual to me at that time that black and evil were directly associated. The nuns taught us that sin was something which resulted from certain actions, and the nature of those actions were usually and popularly described by the extreme cases, such as murder or stealing. However, to a young boy with no ill intents, sin seemed to be something which existed outside of the routine of everyday life, because the concept of what constituted sin was mystical or ethereal, and therefore its consequences were imagined to be disconnected from everyday reality. This was even more so the case because my parents were neither churchgoers nor Bible readers. Although they both had Christian upbringings and they were hard workers and usually decent people, they themselves were basically apostates. Catholics generally did not read the Bible. And that was the one aspect of Catholicism which they evidently adhered to. For quite some time, we had a Bible in our home, but it was certainly never opened. From fifth through the eighth grades, which in case you're curious was 1971 through 1974, I went to a Catholic school without nuns. It had a lot of um, young lay teachers. And the concept, the concept of sin became even more obscure. The new school taught a substitute for Christianity. It wasn't really even close to the, 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 um, Roman, the, the stricter Roman Catholicism of the first Catholic grade school which I attended. The new school taught a substitute for Christianity which was comprised mostly of pop culture, dharma, and 1960s style hippie love which were totally disconnected even from the associated parish church. During these years, the Catholic religion itself was a schizophrenic institution. And by that time, by the time I got to seventh grade, 
I too was an apostate. By the time I was a teenager, sin was not even thought of as a moral concept. Sin was a church word. And if there was no church, there was no sin. That's simple. Because sin was not connected to Yahweh's law in my childhood. In, in fact, except for um, the brief acquaintance we had with the Ten Commandments, which I was never really taught, but they were mentioned in my first couple of years of Catholic grade school. Except for that brief acquaintance with the Ten Commandments, the concept that God had law wasn't even a part of my, my, my experience. Government law and peer approval became the controlling moral authorities of life and not necessarily in that order. Of course, there are some things which Yahweh our God would hate and which the government permitted, but in which I did not partake. However, I realize now that it was only by the grace of God that I was really kept from those things because many of my young peers did indeed venture down those paths. Now I understand, perhaps a lot better than most people, that when the government is your controlling moral authority, then the government becomes your God. There are other means by which the government becomes your God. However, the disconnect between religion and the law of God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is one of the more frequently traveled paths to idolatry. I do not know what all the Catholic schools teach, or even if other Catholics have the same recollection of their religious education as I do. But to me, the biggest error of the Catholic Church in my early education was the failure to illustrate the connection between Yahweh's law and the idea that God had laws, and the concept of sin. And the failure to characterize sin as having real consequences on our daily lives. Perhaps if I had stayed in the, the more traditional Catholic school longer, rather than being transferred to the, 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 the later Catholic school of, of, of my later years, which was filled with um, these New Age hippie chicks as teachers, my religious education would have been advanced beyond those simplistic impressions from my childhood. But now, now I realize that the Catholics cannot possibly teach Yahweh's law properly, even if they so desired. They've gone way too far off that path. So when I read the Bible at age 36, and discovered what sin truly was, my mind, my mind rebelled against the word. Because to me, the word represented something other than what it was truly intended to mean in Scripture. And I imagine that others must have also been misled in a similar manner. I was biased against the word sin. 
Although now I realize that many Protestants, and, and I grew up knowing nothing of Protestantism, many Protestants had a completely different experience in their religious education, so they probably don't understand my bias. However, when I sat down and began to make the translations, which eventually became the Christogenian New Testament, I sought to use words equivalent in meaning to the original Greek, but which were more practical in their relationship to everyday life. So where the King James Version or other translations have, to me, what's a, what's a church word, sin, the Christogenian New Testament has error or fault or guilt or wrongdoing or similarly related words. These are all literal translations of the original Greek words. The noun, usually translated into English from sin, as sin, is hamartia. Hamartia is defined by Liddell and Scott as a failure, a fault, a sin, a fault committed by someone, a fault of judgment, or generally guilt or sin. The related verb hamartano is to miss the mark. That's its, it, its most basic meaning is simply to miss. That, that's what, what, when you throw a piece of paper into a wastebasket and it hits the floor, that's a hamartia. That's a sin. Well, well it's a miss. It's a failure. That's all it means. Generally, it's to fail of doing, to fail of one's purpose, to miss one's point, to go wrong, to err, to do wrong, to fail, to sin, to err in judgment, to do wrong in a matter. Another related word, hamartema, which is also a noun, is a failure, a fault, or a sin. It can even be... In, in, in certain contexts, things like a bodily defect, a malady, an illness. There are many examples in profane Greek literature and scholarly translations of that literature which may be provided as support for the renderings of these words as they appear in the Christogenian New Testament. Error, fault, sin. Sin is failure of purpose. Sin is failure of purpose in the Bible, often referring to the purpose for which God has made the Adamic man. Sin is also error, fault, guilt. Um, it could be a mistake. What should be of import to Christians, however, is where they look for the authority to define what is error, fault, or guilt. If their judgments and their consciences are not in harmony with the laws of Yahweh our God, then we are not following those laws which he wrote on our hearts. Or perhaps we are not his people in order to have them so written. When I was a child, there were things that were considered naughty, even though they were not expressly prohibited by church or state. We did not do those things. We did not do those things because we were following the laws written on our hearts. The morals which came down to us from our parents and our grandparents. 
for that same basic and inherent consciousness of right and wrong, which is necessary for the formation of a sound society. Paul instructed us. Paul commended, I'm sorry, Paul commended the Romans for that same basic inherent consciousness of right and wrong. Paul commended the Romans in chapter 2 of his epistle. However, when we have the laws of Yahweh to instruct us as to what sin is, and our consciences agree with and consent to the law, that it is good. And Paul explains this in the later part of chapter 7 of this epistle. Then, if we have done any of those things in the law, if we have transgressed any of those things, we are convicted of wrongdoing, and we understand that we must repent. Paul endeavors to describe this very thing in Romans chapters 6 and 7. In Romans chapter 4, Paul described the relationship of the law to, justific- to the justification of Abraham and his descendants, those descendants being found in the white nations of Europe, the nations of Christendom, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And Paul explains that their justification is apart from the law because the promises to Abraham preceded and transcend the giving of the law. In Romans chapter 5, Paul attests that the entire the entire wider Adamic race has life in Christ ostensibly in fulfillment of the promises recorded at the close of Genesis chapter 3. The Adamic man was indeed created by Yahweh to be immortal, as we saw illustrated in other scriptures, such as the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2. There are fools who make the mistake of equating the promise of eternal, eternal life to the Adamic man with the teaching of antinomianism. The pudgy little Jew in Chicago loves to claim that. These are two entirely different topics, and nothing could be further from the truth. Paul of Tarsus encountered these same scoffers and challengers, and here in Romans chapter 6, he addresses that same challenge once again. But before beginning, let me say that in my experience, the last five years since I've been doing this, I have found two basic groups of people professing the Christian identity faith. The first group has a clear position on a race issue and the racial message of the Bible. And they also generally understand that man cannot be saved of his own accord. Because no man can keep the whole law, and no man can possibly save himself. Yet, on the other hand, this first group understands a need for the law, and recognizes that it is good. Using it as a model for behavior while acknowledging that sometimes men fail. And in that failure, a need for mercy is realized, especially for the mercy of God, but also for mercy towards one another. 
This first group follows what the scripture teaches. The second group. The second group has a fuzzy position on a race issue. They ignore a large portion of scripture. Then in turn, they subscribe some necessity for works on the part of man in order to somehow earn salvation. Sometimes the works which they insist upon are innocuous, such as the keeping of the food laws, which are, nevertheless, necessary to the maintenance of good health, or an adherence to the water baptism ritual, which even the apostles realized was eclipsed with Christ. The more extreme of these demand that the entire law, the feasts, the Sabbaths, and even sometimes circumcision be kept in order to somehow attain salvation. This is the pharisaical attitude which Paul of Tarsus resisted and condemned because it is antithetical to all of the promises in Christ. These people are self-righteous because they believe that they are attaining their own salvation. Following these things, those who are captivated by this group are often injected with universalist ideas because they believe that men are saved by their own works, and therefore, to these men, the plain word of the promises of God are no longer relevant along racial lines. These people are not Christians. They are Catholics, and they teach some perverted admixture of universalist Catholicism along with an incomplete recognition of Israelite identity because they believe that identity can somehow be transformed into something other than the matter in which God created it. Witness, combined with many other, other of the heresies that they often collect, they certainly become twice-fold the children of hell because they prefer the works of man over the handiwork of Yahweh our God. The second group contends with what the scripture teaches. If Christians perform good deeds, they seek a better reward. But they already have that eternal life granted in the Adamic race when they were created. An examination of Paul's first epistles to the Corinthians, especially in chapters 3, 5, and 15, fully exhibits the truth of those statements. With this, we shall commence with Romans chapter 6. From verse 1. Now, what may we say? Shall we continue in fault or sin that favor would be greater? Certainly not. We who have died in guilt or in sin, how still can we live in it? We who have died in guilt or in sin. As Yahweh in Hosea says that Ephraim died in sin because the children of Israel sinned in a manner that in the law demands the penalty of death. Israel was liable to that penalty. But instead, 
Yahweh God, as Yahshua Christ, the Messiah, determined to die on their behalf. Therefore, Paul is about to draw an analogy that Israel was dead in sin. And therefore, all Israel being revived in Christ should acknowledge that fact. That's the baptism in Christ, as we are about to see. From Hosea, chapter 13, when Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. In other words, when Ephraim was humble, because real humility is subjecting yourself to the word of God, not kissing each other's asses and being nice to each other and accepting each other's sins and errors. That's not humility. Humility isn't compromise with your fellow man. Humility is submitting yourself to the word of God. When Ephraim spoke trembling, when he was humble, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in vow, he died. Verse 4 of Hosea 13, three verses later, Yet I am Yahweh thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. From Isaiah chapter 52, verse 1, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust and sit down, O Jerusalem, Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith Yahweh, ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. So we see that Israel was dead in the law. Israel had to be revived in Christ. Hosea 13, Isaiah 52 it's pretty clear that Yahshua, being Yahweh, could die in place of the children of Israel is explained by Paul later in chapter 7 of this epistle that a wife is released from the law of the husband upon the death of the husband. We'll discuss that towards the end of tonight's program in short and and discuss it at length next week, presenting Romans chapter 7. I'd like to um, take an aside here and address some of the things I'm criticized for. Some people don't like my pronunciation of bow. If you look at Strong's Dictionary, Strong seeks to make the word into two distinct syllables. And Strong's writes it as B-A-H-A-L, Baal. Baal is easily elided into Baal. The Hebrew word in antiquity was represented by both Roman and Celtic writers with three Latin letters, B E. L. Bell. In the um, in the Greek, 
it's B and then the second character in Daniel and 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 I'll use Daniel as an example in in the apocrypha the story of Bell and the dragon it's B Eta L and the Eta it it's um arguable about how the Eta which is a Greek vowel that we do not have in English about how it was pronounced the Eta is sometimes transliterated by scholars as an A and more often as an E, but it's it's a letter kind of lost in between the A and the E, and, and its pronunciation can be argued. We do not have that vowel in English. But when we see it in Latin, it's always an E, Bell, B-E-L. That's bow. There's some people that pronounce the word Baal, Baal, and, and, and that's fine, but it doesn't have any um, scholarly support whatsoever that I have seen. So don't criticize me for my translation of Baal, because you'll just end up looking silly. Another word people love to, tra- to, love to criticize me for is, is Zeon. And if you check Strong's pronunciation guide in your Strong's concordance, under the Greek language articulation, which he has at the very beginning of his Greek dictionary. And this is not my only source for this, but it's the one that you, as a listener, are most likely to have available, because most Christians, I hope, have a strong concordance. If you check that Greek articulation guide, which was a chart created by James Strong back in the 1800s, you'll see the small letter I in Greek, the iota, that it's pronounced like a long E or a double E in English. So it's not Zion, the way the Jews pronounce it. Not in Greek, it's Sion. It's not Sion that I is pronounced like a double E. It's Sion. That's how it was pronounced in Greek. And that's why I pronounce it the way I do. Now, aside from being correct about the pronunciation of the vowel in Greek, Sion, it really pisses the Jews off when they hear me say that. So... I'm not going to change. It's Sion. Thank you. That's the way the vowel was pronounced in Greek. The apostles didn't say Sion. The Jews do. If you want to insist that I translate, that, that I pronounce a word the way the Jews do, well, you can go to hell. Thank you. I don't, I, yeah, I said that. I don't care. That's just an aside, and, and it's really a distraction to the program, and I apologize, but I just had to get that in. I had to get that off my chest. I'm going to repeat the first two verses of Romans. Now, what may we say? Shall we continue in fault? This favor would be greater. Certainly not. Paul's telling these Romans that we are not under the law. That's what he's been telling them for several chapters. But we should nevertheless 
follow the law. We should voluntarily follow the law, even though we're not going to be judged by the law. And that's exactly what Paul's saying here at the beginning of Romans chapter 6. Should we continue in sin that the, the, the favor of God or the grace of God would be greater? Certainly not. And I don't have it handy tonight, but I'll try to remember it next week perhaps. There's an argument in Tertullian in his apology. 120 or 130 years after Paul wrote this epistle to the Romans, Tertullian was repeating the same arguments because people didn't get it. And people still don't get it. It's incredible that they don't get that Yahweh our God wants us to volunteer ourselves into compliance to him. And that's how we earn our reward. That's how we store up treasure in heaven, by submitting ourselves to the word of God and loving our brother. Certainly not. We don't consider what we don't continue in sin. Paul says in verse 2 here, certainly not. We who have died in sin, how still can we live in it? Israel was dead in sin. Israel was made alive in Christ. Verse 3, or are you ignorant that as long as we are immersed in Christ Yahshua, into his death we are immersed? Rhetorical question. So we were buried with him through that immersion into death or baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the honor of the Father, so then we in newness of life should walk. Originally, the Christogenian New Testament translation wanted the article rendered that here. In verse 4, that was an oversight which shall be corrected. Using the article, Paul is referring to a specific immersion or baptism. Here, the particular baptism which Paul references is that baptism mentioned by Christ in Luke chapter 12, verse 50. In Luke 12, 50. Nearly three years after being baptized in water by John, Christ proclaims, but I have a baptism. I'll read the King James Version, right? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened until it be accomplished? The baptism which Christ announced in Luke 12.50 is the very baptism which Paul proclaims here. The baptism in his death. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 5, Paul attests that there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. I can count to one. The baptism of Luke 12, 
50. The baptism Christ was expecting. The baptism Christ was looking forward to. After he had been baptized by John, three years after. The baptism of Luke 12.50 is what Christians should adhere to because that is the baptism of salvation. Salvation is not of the baptism of John. The baptism of John was only a preparation for the gospel. It was not the gospel. The fools who insist upon the necessity of water baptism for salvation, they're stuck in Acts chapter 2, right? They never got beyond Acts chapter 2. The apostles got beyond Acts chapter 2. That's why there's 28 chapters in Acts. And they're not only ignoring this, they're not only ignoring the baptism in Christ, Luke 12.50, they're ignoring the very explanation of Peter in Acts chapter 11, nine, verses after, nine chapters after Acts chapter 2. You want to be an Acts chapter 2 Christian? You're stuck in 37 A.D., In Acts chapter 11, Peter professes about, I think this is about 41 A.D. maybe, off the top of my head. Peter professes that the household of Cornelius received the Holy Spirit without the water baptism ritual. They also ignored the words of Christ recorded in Acts chapter 1 where he said, John baptized in water but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit after not many days hence. That same Holy Spirit that Peter realized came upon the household of Cornelius apart from water baptism. In reference to that very statement which Christ made, which Luke recorded in Acts chapter 1, after acknowledging what had happened in the household of Cornelius, Peter says in Acts chapter 11, verse 16. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how he said that John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Peter is telling us right there that baptism with the Holy Spirit is what Christians seek and not baptism in water. Paul says there's only one baptism, Pick it. Pick which baptism you want. If you choose baptism in water, you're going backwards through the Word of God. You can't go to heaven going backwards. It ain't going to happen. So in 1 Peter 3.21, Peter said, The like figure, and he's referring to the flood of Noah, whereunto even baptism does also now save us. But then he qualifies that, and he says, Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, not baptism in water, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Christ Yahshua. Baptism that saves us is the resurrection of Christ Jesus. That's the baptism which saves us. 
Stop reading your Bible backwards. Read it forwards and come to the whole, to the fulfillment and, and the disclosure of the whole faith. That baptism with the Holy Spirit was only made possible with the death of Christ. As he explains in John chapter 14, from verse 16, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give to you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Is this another comforter something different? No, and we're going to see this momentarily. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Verse 18 proves that Christ himself is the Holy Spirit. Yet a little while. And the world sees me no more. But you see me. Because I live, you shall live also. In verse 26 of that same chapter, we see that the Comforter is, once again, the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, we perceive that the Christ and the Spirit are also one and the same. Israel was reconciled to Yahweh in the Spirit through the death of Yahweh in Christ. In this must Christians be baptized and not in water. Verse 5. Therefore, if united, we have become in the likeness of his death. Then also shall we be of his resurrection. And literally, that's only the or that resurrection. Pronouns are wrong. It, it, especially in Luke's writing, it, if you read the Greek, you'll see that there's very often one pronoun where we in English require two, and, and the one pronoun applies to both situations. The Greek adjective here, sumphutos, and, and I'm going to spend a minute on this because this is exemplary of some of the some of the problems with translations and and why notes are really required to accompany any translation. The Greek adjective sumphutos is not served well enough here with the rendering united. The King James Version has planted together. And it may seem strange, but that may be more accurate in some degree. And, and that's a very literal rendering. The word symphudos, according to Ludell and Scott, is born with one, congenital, innate, natural, inborn, inbred, not being inbred in a sense that we use the English term today in a derogatory sense, but inbred as being a, a part of you when you're born. 
And the large ninth edition of the lexicon also gives united as a definition of the word with some examples from the Greek authors. Perhaps a more literal translation of symphudos may have been born together. And I realized that when I made my translation, that this could say, therefore, if we have been born together in the likeness of his death, I had um, come to the conclusion that 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 phrase can just as well be abused by universalists since the phrase which follows in the likeness of his death may be interpreted to mean that we can somehow find our origin spiritually in the death of Christ and not merely our salvation as they also abuse that a, a similar phrase that means born from above, and, and they interpret it as born again. And I wanted to avoid that. So as the definition of some photos supplied by Liddell and Scott implies, where we have united here, the word means of joint origin. And, and Joseph Thayer defines the word in, in, um, in part of his Greek-English lexicon to mean of joint origin. And that meaning cannot escape us here. Perhaps a more emphatic translation of this passage may more accurately render the intentions. If we of the same race meaning of joint origin, come to the likeness of his death. That does not distort the meaning of the Greek words, but, but it is, um, I, I would consider it laborious, so I did not take that route. This is why translations need explanatory notes in order to be complete. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body would be left void of guilt or void of sin, that we no longer are in bondage to guilt. Paul explains the same thing again in Galatians chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 19. For I, through the law, have died in law, in order that in Yahweh I shall live. I have been crucified with Christ. Now I live no longer, but Christ lives in me. And that I now live in flesh, in faith I live. In that of the Son of Yahweh, who having loved me, then surrendered himself on my behalf. Paul has created an allegory. Israel was deserving of death under the law, under the penalty of the law, and Christ dying on behalf of Israel, the children of Israel should account themselves dead in him. That is what Paul means by being baptized in his death in verses 3 and 4 of this chapter. That is the baptism in which Christ was baptized, as he mentioned in the Gospels. And he refers to this baptism again 
in Matthew chapter 20, and I'll read from the King James Version from verse 22. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of? That's the cup which he prayed be taken from him at the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed that the cup be passed from him, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Any of the apostles could have went and, and seen John in the River Jordan and been baptized. He's not referring to that. He's referring to his coming crucifixion. That's his baptism. That's our second witness from Luke 12.50. They say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. As for that bondage to sin which, in which Israel was held, From Isaiah chapter 61, words which Christ, Christ was recorded in the gospel as having cited in reference to himself. The spirit of Yahweh God is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. The old man, Paul refers to, was Israel alienated from Yahweh their God under penalty of death for their sins. Upon recognition of that, man should depart from sin, and in his reconciliation, he should seek obedience to God. That's what Paul's teaching here. The meek and brokenhearted of Isaiah 61 are repentant Israel. From Psalm 22, which was another messianic prophecy, verse 25, my praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him, meaning Yahweh. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise Yahweh that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. Verse 7, Romans chapter 6. Therefore dying, one is judged worthy apart from fault or apart from sin. One is judged worthy apart from sin because Christ is redeemed all of Israel, without exception. In Isaiah 45, 25, the word of God says that in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified. 
one is judged worthy apart from sin. If we needed to be judged worthy under the law, we would all be condemned. Because we've all sinned. There are fools who claim that where Paul said in Romans chapter 11 that all Israel shall be saved, that he was merely referring to the tribes of Israel, that each of them would have surviving members in the last days. However, Isaiah clearly says that all the seed of Israel shall be justified. And here Paul says that dying, one is judged worthy apart from sin. The mercy for Israel in Christ is complete and without exception. All Israel dying shall indeed be judged worthy apart from sin and apart from the law. All the seed of Israel shall be justified. Anything less is an attempt to repent repudiate the promises of Yahweh God, and only a pudgy little Jew can do that, like the one playing CI in Chicago. No. That's a Talmudic approach to Scripture. It's a Talmudic approach to Scripture to argue with Scripture. You want to start arguing with Scripture? That's what the damn Jews did in the Talmud. Go read the Mishnah. Go read the commentaries on the law in the Talmud. They argue with God. Oh, no, it don't mean that. That just means that all the tribes are still going to be around at the end of time. Well, that's not what Isaiah said. Isaiah said, all the seed. Not all 12 tribes. All the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Romans chapter 6, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, Death no longer lords over him. As Paul said in Hebrews chapter 9, from verse 27, And it is appointed unto men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin Unto salvation. That salvation is to save Israel from their sins. Not to destroy Israel for their sins. Rather, it is the works of the devil that shall be destroyed by Christ. 1 John 3.8 As Paul explained in Romans chapter 5, the entire Adamic race is given life through one decision of judgment. For all men, 
no exception. The post-resurrection judgment to each Adamic man according to his works determines the reward that the works of each merits. It's a separate issue from salvation for our race. Otherwise, the works of the devil can't be undone. Those of Israel who understand the reasons for his death, having been baptized in that death, have an assurance that they also shall be raised from the dead. Yet Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that they're not going to precede the people that died without that assurance, not having heard the gospel. From Hosea, chapter 13, verse 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes, meaning that Yahweh is not going to change his mind about destroying death and the grave. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Death and the grave are guaranteed to be destroyed by God. Whenever we see such scriptures, there are never any of the children of Israel who are given exceptions or who are omitted from the promises of God. If one Israelite ends up in a lake of fire, then Hosea 13 is a lie, and Christ is powerless to save his creation from the works of the devil. As John explains in his first epistle, that the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That serpent of Genesis chapter 3, who saw it and who still seeks to corrupt and destroy our Adamic race. And, and half of your so-called Christian identity pastors are working for them. Yet the assurance of Revelation chapter 20 is that hell and death are cast into the lake of fire. Every Adamic spirit is written into the book of life. And there aren't any bastards, Jews, Negroes, or Chinamen, or Latin American squat monsters written into the book of life because it's the book of the race of Adam. Therefore, only the devil and his children are cast into the lake of fire. Every Adamic soul is eternal, and the works of the devil will be undone. And all the bastards will be in the lake of fire, because every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Salvation is a racial phenomenon. Verse 10. 
Therefore, when he died, the guilt upon all died. There's no exceptions. Because he lives, he lives to Yahweh. In that manner, you also consider yourselves to be dead indeed to guilt or to sin, but living to Yahweh in Yahshua Christ. And as the Apostle John explains in 1 John chapter 2, even when we do sin, we have an intercessor in Christ. And when we profess our sins, he forgives them. When Yahshua Christ died, Yahweh God died because Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God manifest, manifest in the flesh. From Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. A scripture which the Jews love to deny. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. When Yahweh God died, when, when Yahweh God died on earth as a man, Israel was released from the judgments of the law. Israel was no longer liable to the penalty of death, which she, as a nation, merited for her sins of whoredom. Paul said in Romans 5.13 that until the law, sin was in the society, but sin was not accounted, there not being law. Christ fulfilled the law by dying, and sin is in the society, but sin is not accounted to Israel since there is no law. When Christ died, the sin upon all died with him. Paul himself shall explain this in Romans chapter 7. Nevertheless, the children of Israel should learn from their experience that they cannot be justified by the rituals of law or by their own doings. They cannot be justified by anything they do for themselves. Therefore, they should seek to keep the law in spirit in submitting themselves to Christ and seek his mercy when they fail. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let fault reign in your mortal body for which to submit to or obey its desires. Neither should you surrender your members as instruments of wrongdoing in error, but present yourselves to Yahweh as living from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to Yahweh. We don't sin because we want grace to abound. We don't sin because we know that we have salvation. That's no way to earn your reward. Somebody asked me a long time ago, so... I don't have to do anything, and it doesn't matter what I do because I'm saved. And my answer to them was that if they were destined to have no reward in the kingdom of heaven, that their attitude has justified it. 
Christians, knowing that we have eternal life, should seek all the more to be obedient to our God and to provide to the best of our ability for our brethren. Because we do seek that reward. If you want to talk yourself out of it by imagining that you don't have to do anything or that you could go off and be a screw-up because you have eternal life, that's fine. You've justified your reward with your attitude. It's that simple. From Psalm 81, but my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me, or wanted nothing to do with me, right? So I gave them up to their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Paul said this of many of the Romans for the same reason, that they abandoned Yahweh and therefore were given up to the lusts of their own hearts, as we saw in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 7, in the later part of the chapter, Paul will describe the sinful nature of Adamic man. Unlike all of the other creatures, including the bastards, the Adamic man has two natures, the fleshly and the spiritual. Paul is exhorting Christians to follow the spiritual nature, and to suppress the unseemly desires of the fleshly nature, the beast within us. The difference with us is that we have the spirit of God in us, and we can indeed overcome the flesh and its desires. Verse 14, Therefore guilt shall not lord over you, for you are not under law, but under favor. When we screw up, we have mercy as long as we repent and admit our mistakes. And that's the message of the first epistle of John. What then? Shall we commit wrongdoing because we are not under law, but under favor? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as bondmen to obey, bondmen you are to whom you obey, either truly either of error for death or of obedience for righteousness? Israel is not under the law. The law and its rituals were fulfilled in Christ, and therefore Israel shall not be judged by the law. And that's what Paul means when he says that Israel is not under the law. As we had explained in the previous chapters of of Paul's epistle to the Romans, in Romans chapters 4 and 5, the moral laws of God are timeless. They're eternal. They transcend even the creation of man. And we should follow them, indeed. 
They're the laws that are written on our hearts. But the judgments of the Levitical law, we are not under. We're not subject to those. We are under the mercy and grace of Christ. Favor. Because God favored Israel. So we do not sin simply because we're not under the judgments of the law. This is the promise throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. This promise of grace and favor to Israel apart from the law. From Jeremiah 31.2 Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword meaning those not killed by the Assyrians and Babylonians, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. This is not antinomianism, as some simple-minded fools would insist. Because Paul is exhorting that since Israel is not under the law, that Israel should indeed keep the law. That's not antinomianism. It's the recognition that the penalty of death was lifted from us, that we are no longer subject to the law, because the law insisted that we all, Israel as a nation, be put to death because that's the penalty for adultery under the law. When the children of Israel went off into paganism, the law was given, and this is, so many people miss this, the law was given to the children of Israel by Yahweh their God as a matter of his relationship to them, which he described as a marriage to national Israel. The law was a strict condition of that marriage relationship, which was initiated in Exodus chapters 18 and 19. And the children of Israel agreed to keep that law as a condition of their relationship to Yahweh their God. So the entire nation was under penalty of death. When God died on the cross, that penalty of death was lifted. That was the only means under the law by which he could reconcile himself to Israel. That's the promise of the law and the prophets which Christ came to fulfill. We'll discuss that at greater length next week. But this is not antinomianism. Paul is teaching throughout this epistle that in spite of the fact that we're not under the law, under that penalty of death, we should still keep the law. That's obedience to God. Verse 17, here we have it. Romans 6, 17 But feel grateful to Yahweh that you were bondmen of guilt or sin, 
but you obeyed from the heart into which a form of instruction was transmitted. The laws which, the natural laws of man, which Yahweh had, had written upon the hearts of the children of Israel, according to the promise. Here, Paul is referring to that promise, Jeremiah 31, 33. This promise was given to Israel with the announcement of the new covenant. How do we miss that? It's only one law. Man cannot serve two masters. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here Paul is commending these Roman Christians for following the law of Jeremiah 31-33 because the Romans were also a portion of lost Israel. Paul had also commended them for the same thing in Romans chapter 2 where, speaking of Roman society in general, he said, for when the nations who do not have the law by nature practice the things of the law, these, not having law, themselves are a law, who exhibit the work of the law written in their hearts. So here's the second time that he refers to this same thing in this epistle to the Romans. Verse 18. And having been liberated from guilt, you have become bondmen to righteousness. My sheep hear my voice. They heard his voice. Sin leads to death, as Paul himself tells us here in verse 23. We're not quite there yet. The children of Israel were redeemed from the grave, which they had made a covenant with. As Yahweh had promised in Hosea chapter 13. Even David said in Psalm 49, verse 15, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. From Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13, And all thy children shall be taught of Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression. For thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. In verse 17, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh, and their righteousness is of me, saith Yahweh. The children of Israel are deemed righteous, not because they were righteous, or even righteous in the eyes of men, or even righteous according to the law of God. That's not why they were deemed righteous. No flesh can be deemed righteous by the law, as Paul wrote 
in Romans 3.20. Rather, they were deemed righteous by Yahweh God simply because of his election. How dare men reject what Yahweh has considered righteous? Oh, that doesn't mean that all Israel will be saved. My but it does too. He that hates his brother is a murderer, 1 John 3.15, and a liar, 1 John 4.20. Men had better carefully consider the condemnation of their racial brethren because Yahweh said that righteousness is of him, not of man, In another place, Paul asks, who are you to condemn another man's servant? We'll get to that in a few months. Verse 19, from manhood I speak, regarding the weakness of your flesh. For just as you surrendered your members in bondage to uncleanness and to lawlessness for lawlessness. The Codex Vaticanus wants those words, for lawlessness. Now, in that manner, present your members in bondage to righteousness for sanctification. Indeed, when you were bondmen of error, you were free from righteousness. Now, what profit, or literally, what fruit, now what profit did you have then at which you are now ashamed? Surely, the result of those things is death. Paul's talking about when they were pagans under the Roman system, sold in sin. The children of Israel sold themselves for nothing, as Yahweh said to Israel through Isaiah, that you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money, meaning that they had sold themselves into sin. As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, that we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Therefore, the Romans being a portion of dispersed Israel, Paul says to them here, you surrendered your members in bondage to uncleanness and to lawlessness, which is true on the national level and true in varying degrees for each and every Israelite on a personal level because all have sinned. Paul cited Psalm 95 several times in his epistle to the Hebrews. From verse 6, we will read, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. The word of Yahweh says in Jeremiah chapter 4, If thou will return, O Israel, saith Yahweh, return unto me, and if thou will put away thine abominations out of thy sight, and now shalt not remove. 
being established in him means a need to repent from sin. So Paul's teaching properly, according to the prophets, that we are not under the law, that Israel is justified apart from the law, but we still have a need for obedience. Otherwise, we will continue to be punished in this life. The trials, the fiery trials of the flesh. It is evident that the call to the gospel of Christ is also a call to repentance and the forsaking of sin, even if our sins are not accounted or imputed. Verse 22. But now, having been liberated from guilt and becoming bondmen to Yahweh, you have your profit or fruit in sanctification, and the result is life for eternity. All of Israel shall be saved because eventually all of Israel shall be turned to righteousness. Even of sinners and murmurers, as the scripture says, that every knee shall bow. From Isaiah 45, every knee shall bow. And Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 14. Here I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 29, from verse 22. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham, concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he sees his children, the work of mine hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and shall fear the God of Israel. There were no exceptions. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. So even the sinners and the murmurers in Israel are, in the end, corrected and accounted righteous. Again, I'll read from Isaiah 45, Isaiah chapter 45, this time from verse 18, so that we see the context. For thus saith Yahweh that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he has established it, he created it, not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, ye that are escaped of the nations, the children of Israel, who found grace in the wilderness. They had no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save Israel in paganism. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. 
Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, Yahweh? And there is no God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. That's a reference to scattered Israel. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return. Out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return. In other words, this shall not fail. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. All of Israel will return to Yahweh. Surely shall one say, In Yahweh have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him, every naysayer, shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory, without exception. The children of Israel have no choice in their fate. You can't lose your salvation if you wanted to, provided you're a child of Israel. They belong to Yahweh, and therefore they are his bondmen. They shall be obedient, or they shall be punished as a result of their own sins until they are no longer disobedient. The Greek word used by Paul for bondmen throughout his epistles is the word doulos, Strong's number 1401. A doulos, properly in Greek, refers to one who was born a slave rather, to, rather than to one who was made a slave during the course of his own life. The Greeks had a different word for that. That was an andropodon, a word Paul never used. Therefore, only the children of Israel can properly be the bondmen of Yahweh, for only they were accounted his servants beforehand. From Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. And from Isaiah 43, from verse 1, But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he did form thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. Israel belongs to Yahweh. Every child of Israel is a doulas, born a slave to Yahweh. Therefore, Paul said to the Corinthians, chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in you, that spirit which God imparted to Adam, which you have from Yahweh, and you are not your own? Indeed, you have been purchased for a price. So then you honor Yahweh in your body. The keeping of the law is the way to the tree of life. Whether or not Israel is going to be judged by the law is immaterial. The keeping of the law is the way to the tree of life. As we explained the other night, that's why the cherubim 
were placed atop the Ark of the Covenant because it kept the way, the cherubim kept the way to the tree of life and the law was in that Ark. Therefore, here Paul tells us that departing from sin and becoming, voluntarily becoming obedient servants of our God, we find eternal life. All Israel shall find it, whether in this life or not. Verse 23, therefore, the provision of error is death, but the favor of Yahweh, the favor, whether we've sinned or not, we're granted mercy by God. That's what that favor is. The favor of Yahweh is life for eternity in Christ Yahshua, our prince. The wages of sin is death. And when our first parents were enticed to commit fornication by the serpent, he said, ye shall not surely die, and they did. Nevertheless, they have promised eternal life through Christ. Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth unto thee. They're all around us, those thorns and thistles. Some of them are listening to this program. And thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Yet the purpose of Christ is that he might destroy the works of the devil. And even though Adam died in Christ, all of Adam shall be made alive, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, which we explained here at length last week. The ultimate plan of Yahweh's salvation is that all is restored to the purpose of his original creation. This is the restoration of all things, but the Judeo-Christians don't have it right. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that indeed it is necessary for him to reign, this is from verse 25, until he should place all of the enemies under his feet. The last enemy abolished is death. That verse alone shows that all of the enemies are going to be abolished. They're not going to be rehabilitated somehow. The last enemy abolished is death. The enemies are all abolished under his feet. That's the reason for the blood on his garments in Revelation chapter 19. Up to the horse's bridles. Therefore, all are subjected under his seat. Now, until it may be said that it is evident that all things have been subjected, 
And then Paul makes a parenthetical statement where he says, because outside of the subjecting of all things to himself, and until all things are in subjection to him, then also the Son, of, the Son himself will be subjected in the subjecting of all things to himself, in order that Yahweh may be all things among all. In the end, the entire Adamic race shall be subjected to God, and all of the enemies of God shall be destroyed. Most translators play a sleight-of-hand deception in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verses 17 and 18. In 517, the King James ends with the popular exclamation, Behold, all things have become new. Then in 2 Corinthians 518, it begins with the phrase, And all things are of God. But that is not true. That word and in that phrase in 2 Corinthians 5.18, that's the Greek particle dare. Dare is not merely a conjunctive particle. That would be kahi. Dare is a conjunctive particle with adversative force. Even those few translations which do translate this word correctly add another word to the text, the verb are. But the verb are is not inferred here. Paul is qualifying his statement that all things from God are made new, but all things from God, all things are not necessarily from God. All things, behold, all things are become new, and in 5.18, Paul qualifies that where he says, but all things from God. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, one chapter later, Paul tells us, come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean. The unclean, they're not from God. He's referring to people there, not to objects. So we have to be careful with that idea of the restoration of all things. Because Paul says, all things from God. Not everybody here is from God. There are people, as the Apostle John explains in 1 John chapter 4, there are people born of the world. Why are there people born of the world? Because they're not born from God. As Christ says, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant, there are people here that aren't from God. They shall be rooted up. With this, we shall begin to look at Romans chapter 7, which contains an important biblical theme that we shall discuss at length next week, but we're going to touch on it tonight before we close here. Are you ignorant, brethren, I speak to those who know the law, that the law lords over a man for as long a time as he shall live? For a woman married, or literally subject to, for a woman married to a living husband is bound by law. But if the husband should die, 
she is discharged from the law of the husband. So then, as the husband is living, she would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. Well, the children of Israel were labeled adulteresses when they were found with other gods. But if the husband should die, she is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. Now, Paul is talking about the law of marriage here, apart from the possibility of divorce. Divorce is not in this picture, so it need not be considered for the purpose of this illustration. Consequently, my brethren, you also are put to death in the law through the body of Christ for you to be found with another who from the dead was raised in order that we should bear fruit for Yahweh. Indeed, when we were in the flesh, the occurrences of fault, which were through law, operated in our members for the bearing of fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law. Why would Paul be saying that here? Because he's talking to Israel. He's talking to Israel discharged from the law because their husband, Yahweh our God, died on their behalf as Yahshua Christ. But now we are discharged from the law, being put to death in that which we were held, so that we are bound in newness of spirit and not oldness of letter. For several chapters of his epistle, and after this point, where he continues in this chapter, Paul has been explaining how Israel would not be judged by the law, even though Israel was under the law and was subject to death as a penalty for sin. So here, Paul decides to discuss the relationship of a wife to her husband, and to the laws of her husband. And he very explicitly says, with this discussion, that we, that his audience, that his readers, these Roman Christians, are also put to death in the law through the body of Christ, for them to be found with another who was raised from the dead and says that we are now, with that death of Christ, discharged from the law. Paul here is not merely making some parenthetical statement concerning domestic relations. Paul is not merely giving a lesson on marriage here. While in the middle of such a long dissertation spanning many chapters concerning the relationship of Israel to the promises and the law of Yahweh God, rather, Paul is explaining precisely how it is that Israel was released from the law of Yahweh their God. Evidently, there are people claiming to be identity Christians, like that pudgy little Jew boy in Chicago, who do not take the marriage relationship of Yahweh and Israel seriously. And they claim that it's only an allegory. 
So therefore, in their minds, evidently Yahweh's word does not count for much. If Yahweh God is the author of life, he can define the terms as he wants to, and we should not be found arguing with his word. Here we shall present some of the scriptures, which indeed show that Israel, as a nation, was the wife of Yahweh their God. And Israel still is, as we shall see in the week to come, Yahweh willing. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, explains Yahweh's having put his wife away, which is Israel the nation perceived as the mother of the children of Israel. Thus saith Yahweh, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Isaiah 54.1 compares the children of Israel, the children of the married wife, to the surrounding nations or the children of the desolate where it says, Sing, O barren that did not bear, break forth into singing, and cry aloud that thou didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith Yahweh. Isaiah 54.5 allows us to assert that our interpretation of Isaiah 54.1, which we just read, is correct where the word of Yahweh says, For thy maker is thine husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Yahweh is God, creator, husband, and redeemer of Israel. And therefore, Christ is Yahweh in the flesh. As Isaiah 9, 6 says, his name shall be called the Almighty God, the Everlasting Father. Hosea 2, 7, where Yahweh speaks of Israel playing the harlot, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find him. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. Hosea 2.20, speaking of the promise of a future relationship of Yahweh and Israel, after he had put the nation away. Once Israel returns to him, he says, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. Both Isaiah and Hosea proved that Israel is returning to Yahweh the husband, which can only be Christ. That is what the wedding supper of the Lamb in, in the book of Revelation is all about. That is why John the Baptist referred to Christ as the bridegroom 
And that is why Christ referred to himself as the bridegroom in so many parables. That is why when Christ illustrated his own return, he framed it in those same terms as a bridegroom coming for his bride. The bastards that want to obscure the relationship between Yahweh and Israel so that they can squeeze other races into the equation, they want to obscure the nature of this relationship in the historical Israel and in prophecy of the descendants of those same people, that same nation in the future, that same race. The sad part is that some of those bastards that want to obscure the racial message of Scripture, they're masquerading as so-called Christian identity pastors today. The pudgy little Jew in Chicago, the dirty bastard from the South, the clown in Missouri. Of the two groups of so-called identity Christians, which I described at the opening of the program tonight, it is that second group who offhandedly dismisses the marriage relationship of Yahweh and Israel. They contend with Scripture rather than accept it. Then they seek to include people of dubious origins into the covenants of God, imagining that such can be cleansed even if their very beginnings have violated the laws of God. They pretend to keep the law while they themselves esteem the law as nothing. It's time to grow up, identity Christians, and stop facilitating and accepting the clowns that contend with Scripture. Resuming this presentation of Paul's epistle to the Romans, we shall begin with chapter 7 anew, ab initio, and discuss the importance of Paul's words here in depth, Yahweh willing, next week. Tomorrow night, the non- the non-Adamic races and biblical eschatology continued from last week. Unless a man is born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven, and no bastard is born from above. No Negro, no Chinaman, no bastard, no squat monster, no red Indian, no half Cherokee pretending to be a preacher. Okay, thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. And good night.